Thanks for downloading this podcast from Teacher Magazine. I'm Dominique Russell. Research shows that challenging problem-solving tasks has a positive impact on student learning, but there's little evidence on student attitudes towards problem-solving when it comes to doing this in the maths classroom. My guest today is education consultant at Love Maths, Michael Minnis. He works in primary schools to help improve learning in mathematics through professional development, classroom modelling and work with parents. His areas of interest include problem solving and student engagement, and during his time working in primary school maths classrooms, he's noticed anecdotally that students respond really positively to being presented with challenging problem solving tasks. So to formally investigate this, he conducted a study to assess student attitudes towards problem solving in maths alongside Dr. James Russo from Monash University. The study focused on 52 students in two classrooms, a year three and four class and a year five and six class in a primary school in Melbourne. Michael led a number of lessons in each classroom, which presented challenging problem-solving tasks to students. The classroom teachers observed these lessons and then led these same tasks with the students. The lesson structure used was launch, explore, discuss and summarise, which Michael will go over in more detail in the episode. After these lessons, the students completed a questionnaire to assess their opinions on the task. The results found that three quarters of students reported unambiguously positive attitudes towards problem solving. The others were ambivalent and no student expressed a negative attitude. So if you're interested in implementing challenging problem solving tasks in your classroom, keep listening to hear Michael explain in detail the structure of these tasks and what elements students enjoyed most. Let's jump in. Thanks for joining me, Michael. I just thought it would be good to get a bit of background on the work that you're doing at the moment to start things off and why this research was important for you to conduct. Um, Yeah, I I guess a lot of my work at the moment is um, in classrooms. And one of the things that a lot of schools are interested in is trying to get um, more problem solving happening in their mathematics classrooms. So a lot of the work that I do is in classrooms, modeling problem solving lessons, working with teachers to sort of develop their, their sort of uh, approach, their, their level of comfort with that, that style of teaching. Um, and so for me, this, this was really interesting because, um, you know, I know anecdotally through my sort of experience with working with hundreds and hundreds of students that I can see the positive responses, but it, I, you know, it's obviously an area that hasn't had a lot of research done to it. So it's good to be able to have, you know, the start of looking at uh, in a more formal way of like, how do students actually feel in these types of lessons? What's the experience like for them? And so the research obviously looks at two classrooms in particular in a primary school in Melbourne, looking at those middle years in primary school, which, like you say, hasn't really been looked at in much detail in the literature. So can you describe for me a bit about the school context of this particular school that you were doing the research in? Yeah, so, I mean, it was, it's a, it's, you know, it's a typical sort of primary school. It wasn't sort of... Um, Uh, It didn't have sort of anything outstanding in terms of like the cohort of students, the size of the school, 
you know, 300 kids. It was a pretty sort of demographically irregular mix of students. In terms of mathematics, uh, it, it was it was uh, philosophically quite a traditional um, um, environment for students to work in with a lot of sort of teacher-directed work. You know, I'll show you how to do it and then you go back to your tables and you reproduce what I've put on the board and, and maybe answer, you know, a series of questions using the approach that I've shown you. Um, so this, this style of, of lesson and learning was quite different for both the staff and the students at the school. And so obviously this style of learning that you exposed them to was received very positively from the students involved, which we'll talk about in a bit more detail soon. But I'm interested then in what the students' opinions were of maths before this problem-solving task was introduced to them. Do you have any concept of how they viewed maths in general? Did they enjoy it or were they enthusiastic about it? Yeah, so now we had uh, a couple of things. Though. So, you know, like fairly informal, but but um, I, when I arrived there, one of the first things I did was I did some surveys with all of the students from year three to six. Uh, and the surveys were around their attitude to maths and also their self-perception. Um, so how they saw themselves as math learners. And there were some really clear negative trends there. So that was a starting point, you know, working with the leadership of the school to say this, that, like there are some issues here and, 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 you know, you can clearly sort of see that there are some issues here from the survey data. Um, but, but beyond that, I mean, anecdotally, I, I, my very first day at the school, I distinctly remember this, um, I was walking into uh, one of the rooms at the school and a, a little grade three girl said to me, oh, like, who are you? And I said, oh, you know, I'm Michael and I'm going to be here. I'm going to be working with you guys on maths and whatever. And um, her friend that was sitting with her, like who wasn't part of the conversation, like in, in, inserted herself into the conversation to say, oh, we hate maths and both of us hate maths. Um, and was just really like, like really wanted to make a point of letting me know that she hated math. So like that, that type of interaction was probably the most memorable, but I had lots of those types of interactions where people said, oh, you're working with maths. Oh yeah. We, I don't like learning maths. You know, I'm, I'm not interested in maths. I hate maths. Math is my least favorite subject. So I had lots of those uh, interactions with the kids. Um, and, you know, with that girl on the very first day, I said to her, well, you know, hopefully, um, if we have this same conversation in November, that you'll, you'll you know, that, that you will have shifted the way you see maths. But that's my job to do that. That's not your job. And so can you talk me through really the structure of these problem-solving tasks that you led in the classrooms? Because I know you were leading them for a little while and the classroom teacher was observing the lessons that you were conducting. So what's the structure of these tasks? Yeah, so one of the things is that the... Um, the structure is a, a, a very sort of central feature of this approach. And the idea is that that structure is meant to be very predictable for both the staff and for the students. So, you know, we'd start with a warm-up activity and the, the central idea of that is that you want that to be an engaging warm-up to have the kids starting the lesson with, you know, a lot of energy and enthusiasm. And that would be followed by the launch of the problem. And ideally, most problems, we want them to be launched with some sort of narrative link, some sort of connection to the real world. Um, and we want that to be done in a concise way. So the idea there is it's not like a mini lesson of let me get up the front and tell you everything I know about division for the next 15 minutes. The idea is that we're giving them a task that maybe the task lends itself to multiplicative thinking and division, 
but we're leaving space for the students to approach the task um, from their own perspective. So that I, I, I will say to teachers, ideally we want that launch to be sort of somewhere around the five minute mark. Um, and for a lot of classroom teachers, that's a challenge. That, that sort of directly um, conflicts with the way that they, they're currently taking their maths lessons. And then, the, and then by extension, the shorter that launch is, the more time the students have to be exploring, engaged with the task. So in order for, in order for you know, students to stay working on a task for 35, 40 minutes, the task needs to be challenging. It needs to be cognitively engaging for them. Um, and so that, that explore time starts with five minutes of silent, independent work. And it's really important that it is silent and is independent. Um, and then from there, I, I'm a big advocate for um, actively encouraging collaboration in the classroom. So not just saying, if you want to work with someone, you can, but, you know, actively encouraging the kids to say, hey, why don't you go and have a talk to Megan and see what she's doing? Because she's got some similar thoughts to you, but she's approaching it in a bit of a different way. Um, and then the lessons will always finish with some sort of uh, summary of what we've done. And that, again, is student-centred. So the idea is that we, myself or whoever the teacher is, is looking for student examples to, to sort of showcase at the end of the lesson to say, hey, have a, let's, you know, talk to me, Dominic, about what you've done. Uh, let's explore and, and getting you to sort of explain your thinking. Um, but, but being really strategic about who you select. So it's not like everyone comes to the floor, okay, who'd like to share their work? And the same three kids put their hands up every day. It's you as a teacher being really strategic about who you select and why. And so something I found really interesting in the report, just as a bit of an example of how this structure plays out, the example of the chessboard tournament problem. So the problem was launched with a short story about a family holiday and there was a big chessboard where they were staying. So you displayed a photo of one of the children playing on that chessboard at the front of the classroom and then you gave the task, which was if six children wanted to have a round-robin tournament, how many games would need to be played? And then you had a prompt, which asked students to draw a diagram of how they'd work this out. Then you also provided some extending prompts. So can you give a quick run-through of how that played out in the classroom? And did the students respond well to the extension prompts? Just to give you a bit of an idea about the narrative side of things, like that task was based around a photo that I shared with the kids of you know, my, my own family when we were on holidays playing chess on a chessboard. And I've had some really positive interactions with kids around that where some kids will come and say to you, oh, you know, I'm, I play chess lots and I'm a big fan of chess. So it's building relationships there where they can say that you might share a common interest. I mean, I've had the other experience where I've, I've been at a school and I've told the kids, oh, this giant chessboard was at this particular you know, holiday place in Queensland. And then I've, I've had um, a, a student come back to me like two months later over, over the summer holidays and saying, guess where I went over summer? We went and stayed at Paradise Resort and we played chess on that chessboard, you know, and, and the kid being really excited to share that with you. So the, so the narrative, that was the, the true part of the narrative. I mean, the made up part was, I mean, it, it talks about us having a round robin chess tournament. Now, we didn't have a round robin chess tournament. We were actually there trying to enjoy, we didn't spend all day at a, at a giant chessboard playing chess. So I think it's like teachers being able to feel uncomfortable taking parts of their life, you know, some real world application, but also feeling free to be able to sort of elaborate, add to it and make it work for the maths. Um, the task, yeah, students, it's a really fantastic task because it's got quite a low entry point in that, you know, you could work on that task just sort of saying, 
you know, it's like the old problem where you say, oh, you know, there are eight people in a room and they all shake hands with each other. Like how many handshakes will there be? But it's much more, I mean, the idea of playing chess against each other, students can can visualise that a lot better and, and, and can sort of like conceptualise it to say, well, if Nash plays against Isaiah and then he next Nash would play against Genevieve the next, so he could, they can sort of work through all the combinations of who Nash would need to play. Um, lots and lots, of, nearly every student you give that task to can enter the task and can have some level of success. Um, but but at, at the higher level, it's a very cognitively engaging task. I mean, the extension task is asking for them to basically find the formula uh, of how to work out any triangular number. Um, and so, you know, I use that task with year three, four students, and I've had um, students I've worked with in the year three, four cohort who are able to sort of show you, I can work out any triangular number and this is how you do it. And they can show you visually how the formula works. Um, so I think that's the beauty of these types of, um, this approach to teaching in that you're, you're really allowing for um, true differentiation. You know, you're, you're presenting a task and there's scope there for students to work at a, a you know, number of different sort of levels. And as we mentioned very briefly before, that classroom teachers were observing you first conducting these lessons before conducting the lessons themselves. Why was that important to do than just instructing the teachers on how to run this and getting them to launch straight into it? Why was the observation element quite critical? Oh, I, I maybe believe in, in if you want to sort of... Um... If you want to get change happening within an organisation, it's important to have buy-in from people. It's important for people to, to actually believe that what you're doing is going to be beneficial. And, and so for teachers, you know, the vast majority of teachers, when they see something is effective with their own students, you've won them over. So if they can see their own students being challenged in a way they previously haven't been challenged. If they can see that, I mean, I had this experience yesterday where I was at a, at a school in the sort of Western suburbs of Melbourne and I was working in a prep classroom and there was a, a prep student who, you know, traditionally didn't really have a lot of success in the math class. And then this, uh, this student produced some work and the classroom teacher was literally speechless. Like he was just blown away and he was like, I cannot believe that, He's just done that. I've never seen him do that before. Now, when I go back to work with that teacher in a fortnight's time or whenever I'm back out there to work with them, they're going to be much more receptive to this approach because they, they can see that it works. And I think you're also setting teachers up for success then because if they've seen that lesson structure a few times, the idea that it is very repetitive as a structure gives them something that they can sort of say, right, now if I'm going to have a go at taking a lesson using this approach, these are the things that I want to do. And it's very sort of, um, it's very easy to reproduce because they've seen it done a number of times. So it's, it's both about supporting the teachers so they can have success, but also about generating that buy-in. And, and, and I think that that comes, it's one thing to deliver PD and to say, this is great, it's another thing for teachers to see it working with their own students. And so another big part of the study was how you actually measured the attitudes that the students held towards these problem-solving tasks, and they were overwhelmingly positive. You'd mentioned before that this was kind of what you were expecting to happen, because anecdotally you knew that students responded really well to these kinds of tasks. But something I found really interesting was that they really enjoyed the challenging aspects of those problems and also the collaborative nature. So can you talk me through what the students said and wrote in their questionnaires about those two particular aspects? 
Yeah, I, I guess, I mean, one thing that did surprise me was I, I expected the results to be positive because that's kind of what I see when I work, not just at this school, but at lots of schools. I, I was surprised in the fact that of all the students that were involved in the study, that there was no one that expressed like a negative attitude, um, which, you know, was, was quite sort of um, gobsmacking for me. Um, but but in, in terms of what they identified that that, that made it um, in, um, enjoyable, engaging for them, like you said, there was a couple of things they touched on. So one was that idea of challenge. And I think that this is something that sometimes teachers struggle with, this idea that, like, if I make the work more challenging, the kids will disengage. They won't, they won't, they, they won't, they won't persist. They won't enjoy tackling the task. And I actually think that's sort of counter to everything we know about humans. If we think about ourselves as adults, uh, if we're given some sort of routine mundane tasks to perform over and over again, it's every chance we'll probably like, we might do it if we have to do it, but we're not going to enjoy it. But we, people love a challenge. People love sort of, you know, being pushed cognitively and trying to see if they can be the first one to figure things out. And so I, I think humans love a challenge. And the, if I enjoy a challenge as a 43-year-old, there's no reason to think that like a six-year-old or a 12-year-old wouldn't enjoy a challenge. So um, that that's come through to me anecdotally, you know, time and time again over the years. So it was good to see that coming through formally in the study that we did. Uh, the other really big thing, and again, this really, in some cases, this really sort of like, uh, contrast with the regular classroom practice, this idea of allowing the students to collaborate. Um, and like I said before, not just allowing, but actively encouraging it. I think a lot of classroom teachers are concerned that if they let the kids, you know, move around the room and talk to each other, they're going to lose control and it's going to descend into chaos. But I think the two ideas you've just asked about are, are connected. Like if they're working on something that they think is worthwhile and challenging, they're much more likely to stay on task. And again, humans enjoy collaborating, right? Humans enjoy socialising, talking, sharing ideas. So if that's the way, if I was to present PD at a school and I was to do five hours of me talking and there'd be an opportunity for the staff to actively engage and collaborate with each other, I mean, I would never be invited back to the school. So then the question would be, well, why do we get our students to do this? Why is a maths lesson me talking for 20 minutes telling you everything I know about um, place value and then you working on a worksheet by yourself for half an hour without and not being allowed to talk? I mean... That, that's not going to be enjoyable for us as adults. Why would it be enjoyable for an eight-year-old in a year two class? So I think that in some cases, the success that we have when we go in and work at schools is, is partly because it's such a sharp contrast to the regular practice in the school about the way maths is learned. And, and, and that if we can make mathematics more social, that we have much more chance of having students being engaged and wanting to learn. And is part of that as well, like you mentioned before, the fact that they have that five minutes at the beginning to concentrate on the problem as an individual and silently, but then they open up to the collaboration. Is that balance quite good and quite important? Yeah, it's really crucial. And I always tell teachers I'm working with that one's not more important than the other, that they're equally important. But if you let kids collaborate straight away, then what you might find is that kids are just straight away 
you know, say you and I are working together and you're a stronger student in terms of like your current performance in maths, well, I might just be led by you and you're just telling me do this, do that. And I'm just much more likely if I've had some time to think and ponder on the task that A, when I come to you, maybe I'll have some questions about what I'm doing and you can guide me and direct me rather than telling me what to do. But B, there might be the chance that I choose not to work with you, even though we may be best friends because I may see that someone else is, is like approaching the problem with a sort of similar mindset, a similar approach to me. Or I may choose to say, in this instance, I'm going to keep doing this by myself because I feel like I'm getting some momentum here. I feel I can see that I'm making some progress. So I think that that five-minute silent time is really crucial. And then, that, then it becomes really crucial. This becomes a classroom management thing. But as a teacher, you have to be able to make sure that it is truly five minutes and it is truly silent and it is truly depend, independent and also truly productive. Because it's no good them just sitting silently looking at the clock, you know, looking at a stopwatch counting down before they bang go into sort of talking to each other. So the way you know that's productive is when you see the kids are on task, when you see sort of the tops of their head as they're looking down at their page and they're thinking and they're gathering materials and, um, and you can tell really clearly as a teacher when that's not happening. And so just finally then, I'm thinking now for teachers who are listening to this episode, who are thinking they want to implement a similar approach in their maths classroom for students of a similar age, is there anything that we haven't covered already that would be good to keep in mind or perhaps some good first steps to take? Um, yeah, look, I think that the, the model that I see that, that works really well is I think what we spoke about before is that you have to have... Um, you have to have sort of people that are able to um, model how what it should look like and to be able to sort of win teachers over for them to have to say, I can see the benefit of this, I can see how this works. So whether that be, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not trying to um, sprout for work, but whether that be internally, you know, like a lot of schools have, you know, really great classroom teachers. Some of those people have moved into sort of learning specialist roles um, but but whether but that be internally where those people are given the time to go into other people's classrooms and to be able to model this type of approach and to show the classroom teachers how it works and to be able to answer those questions or whether it be externally by you know bringing in um, consultants to be able who who have the skill and expertise to do it I think that's really important I think it's important that people see it in practice first before they try to do it. And it's also really important that as well as seeing lessons that people have time to then unpack the lesson and talk about it together. So if you've got a learning specialist at your school that's modelling this type of lesson for, say, a graduate teacher, there needs to be some time allocated for them to sit. So Because the graduate teacher may walk away saying that was a great lesson, but the, the next step is for them to be able to identify why was it a great lesson, what worked and what can they do to plan a similar great lesson uh, the following week because you know if you just say well that was a great lesson but I can't do that lesson again because my kids have already done it so where do I go with it whereas if you can identify and say oh I see what worked well the thing that worked well was that they were engaged in the problem why were they engaged in the problem I had a real world link oh why was your questioning effective during the lesson well it was because you knew you had a clear focus of what the content was what 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 are we focusing here what's the mathematical concepts we're focusing on so as a classroom teacher, you know the right question to ask to the right student at the right time. Mm. And there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of sort of work that goes into that. But like I said, it is definitely something that's attainable for all classroom teachers with the right support. 
That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast channel on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud so you can be notified of any new episodes. While you're there, we'd love for you to rate and review the podcast in your podcast app.